Well, this week I was looking over my books that I have on my bookshelf, and totally separate from all the books I have in my digital library, I have so many theology books on my shelves. I mean, I, going back to the, to the fathers, to the, to the Middle Ages, of course, the Reformation era, I mean, I've got Calvin, I've got some Aquinas, I've got, I've got post-Reformation people like Turretin, like Bavinck, like, like uh, Abrackle, John Owen. I, I have all the big names, okay, going up to the modern age. And, and we have all these doctors of the faith that have written much ink, spilling their lives to try to explain Scripture, and, and what we've been saying as we have studied the book of Exodus is that Exodus really is the fount of Old Testament theology. It is in Exodus where most of the redemptive themes, the biblical concepts that inform the rest of the Bible, they're revealed in Exodus. So in a very real sense, if you could have the book of Exodus uh, pulled out of the Bible, you could have you know, biblical theology, author Moses, right? Because this is biblical theology at its finest. Here we see fleshed out and we get a pictorial glimpse of these concepts that fill so much of the theology of later revelation. So for example, back in chapter 12, when the instructions for the Passover were being given, we learned there about the importance of the concept of substitutionary atonement. The concept that God was visiting the people of Egypt and everyone therein for their sin. And someone was going to die in every house. But God in His mercy made a way that the people of Israel could be spared. And so He said, sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doors of your house and that death will substitute for the death of the firstborn. So we learn from chapter 12 about the concept of substitutionary atonement. But what the people of Israel are just now learning is the gravity of their sin. The gravity of the fact that when you confront a holy God, you and I, they, aren't even worthy, aren't even acceptable enough to come to God and offer that sacrifice. We've been talking about the tabernacle and how it fills such a huge portion of the book of Exodus. Really, from chapter 25 to the end of the book in chapter 40, it's all about the tabernacle. Except for these three little chapters, 32, 33, and 34, that sort of interrupt the whole narrative. And the reason for this recording of the Golden Calf episode is because the people need to understand why they need the tabernacle. Because they can't keep God's law. They hadn't come face to face with the gravity of the consequences of sin. And so they needed a, a written record that they would remember always of just how bad and pernicious our sinfulness is so that we could actually appreciate the concept of grace, the concept that God wants to dwell with us. And so this, this passage here is a reminder of our sin. 
It's a reminder of why the tabernacle, why it's such an amazing thing that Jesus, the Word of God, took on flesh and dwelt among men. It's amazing because we don't deserve it. We learned last week that our hearts are prone to wandering. And just like the people of Israel, they'd been waiting for 40 days. And and it didn't take long at all for them to want to move on. They faced an uncertain future, and so they needed gods to go before them. And a god is simply anything in which we invest our trust and our confidence to see us through the difficulties of life. And when we sin, we tend to have one attitude about it. But most of us fail to grasp just how how heinous our sin is in the sight of God. So what what this part of the chapter does, verses 7 to 35, it stresses the, the vast gulf that exists between the people's estimation of their sinfulness and the estimation that God has of their sinfulness. So there's this vast gulf between the outlooks, what the people are thinking and what God's thinking. And so this section underscores our need for a mediator. Someone has to be able to bridge that gulf. We have learned from, from, from the time we were attending Awanas as kids in our Baptist churches or whatever, that we are sinners. That according to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we all fall short. But someone has to be able to get across, to mediate, to represent us, to plead our case before God. Now, for most of us, we think of uh, of a mediator as someone who helps two parties come to an agreement to hash it out. You know, uh, most labor unions don't want to strike. They they and and most management don't want their labor striking. So they'll oftentimes hire a mediator to see if they can avert that. Let's work it out. Let's come to an agreement. But we, by nature, are objects of wrath. We are hostile in our minds and in our beings to God. That is why even though we may be religious and we may be spiritual, so seldom do our hearts and minds and affections turn in truth to the living God because He's our enemy by nature. Who then will mediate before us? Because it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this passage underscores the need for a mediator because we need someone who is acceptable in God's sight just to offer the atonement sacrifice so that our sins can be forgiven. Not just any old person can offer that sacrifice because we're all guilty. The concept of a mediator is is one of those basic premises upon which Christianity is built. That's why we learn in in 1 Timothy 2 that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who stands in the gap. Jesus is the one who holds out His nail-pierced hands. And so in this passage, 
we, we get a, a very emotional, visceral glimpse of, of God's response to our repeated and our grotesque rebellion. Because that's how he views our sin. And we see a picture and a glimpse of what Christ as our mediator does on our behalf. And based upon that, we have hope eternal that we will be forever secure before our Father. But first we have to acknowledge that we oftentimes have a view of our own sin that makes our reading of God's response seem like it's kind of overboard. Let's face it. Many of us will read this passage and think that God is going overboard. He's threatening to wipe them all out. All they did is they just messed up. I mean, love, mercy, grace, it's what you do. Forgive. It's what you do, God. That's why you're around. To, to make us feel better about ourselves when we just you know, commit these human foibles. Boys will be boys. It's not God's attitude. So we see in verse 22, just to get us sort of a little ahead, because this, this is our response. This is our response. Moses comes down and he confronts Aaron. And he's giving Aaron the benefit of the doubt. What did these people do to you? I mean, did they rip off your fingernails? I mean, what did they do to you to make you do this? And what's Aaron's response? Aaron's response is my response. Aaron's response is your response. This is how we are. Aaron's response is, don't let my Lord's anger burn hot. You know what he's saying? That's, that's like hoity-toity English language, but you know what he's saying? Chill out. Calm down. How many people say that when their spouse is angry? Calm down. Women love that. Right, ladies? You love it when your husband says to calm down. Calm down. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. You know these people. <laughs> these people. You know these people and how evil they are. Why? And then he recounts their, what they said to him. Now, now, now you've got to think psychologically here. Why do you think Aaron recounts what they said, including the remark about Moses being gone for so long? Is it just because he's a faithful steward of what was said to him? Because psychologically, here's what happens, and this is what we do. By bringing up Moses being gone, what's he kind of doing? He's putting a little bit of the responsibility on Moses. You know, it's, it, Moses, chill out. You know these people. I mean, they're crazy. And, you know, they came up to me and, and, you know, by the way, Moses, you weren't here. So you, you kind of contributed or, or you at least set the conditions. And, and, and I practically did nothing. I just, you know, they were going to kill me. Or, and so I just, I just threw it into the fire and, and out it came. That's, you know. He's downplaying the right of the victim to be angry. He's actually throwing some of the blame back on the victim. 
he's actually uh, minimizing and diminishing his own role. Now, we're tempted to say he's lying. I mean, it's so absurd that he's just saying a bold-faced lie. Of course, he's, he's totally omitted the fact that he not only made a calf, he made an altar. And not only did he make an altar, he called for a religious feast. He invoked the name of the Lord for this pagan feast. So he's broken the first, the second, and the third commandments in like 20 minutes. He, he ignores all that. I just threw it in. Now, is he saying a bold-faced lie? Maybe. But you want to know what I've seen and what I've experienced and what I've done? Humans are desperate to be justified in their own eyes. Humans hate having a guilty conscience. We hate it. And I, in, in, in almost a decade of counseling in the army, I have heard so many absurd, ludicrous things that people tell themselves because they are desperate to have a clean conscience. You know how many times I have rewritten history in my own mind to make myself the victim? or to make myself the non-guilty party, or to at least diminish the guilt, or at least to create or, or enhance the, the, the egregious factors that contributed and thereby lessened the badness of my act. We do it. We make excuses, and we rewrite history all the time. We love taking white out, or hitting the backspace we love doing that it comes like second nature but guess what we may think that our sin is no big deal we may think that there's always an extenuating circumstance that diminishes the badness oh my affair wasn't such a bad thing because my spouse was so cold and distant what did you expect me to do oh what did you expect me to do to be honest on my the government's crooked you can't get ahead otherwise. Oh, it's, it's not such a big deal that I said this hateful thing to this person because look what they've done all this time. We do it all the time. And we think in our prayers, I have actually prayed to God justifying myself like Aaron does here. And, and one time I was in seminary and I was doing it and I started laughing. I'm, how self-deceived am I that I think that God cares about my spin? I sinned. Period. We're sinners. Period. And our acts of rebellion are rebellion. Period. So our attitude is one of diminishing the badness, the wickedness of our sin. And so our perception is that God should have basically the same mindset. You know, yeah, it's, it's, he doesn't prefer it, Get over it. Don't let your anger burn so hot, my Lord. You know these people. What else could I have done? That's our response to our sin. And if that was our response, and if that was God's response, then the tabernacle wouldn't be necessary. We wouldn't need a mediator. We wouldn't need a substitutionary sacrifice because, hey, just human foibles. Boys will be boys. 
But no, that's not God's response. What is God's response? God is angry at our sin. Okay? I want to be crystal clear. When you lust after that person, or when you're viewing things on the internet or on your DVD player that you should not be viewing, or when you're harboring those thoughts, or when you're committing those actions, God hates it. God hates our sin. It is offensive. It is infuriating. God views it as treason. Your sin is not a small thing to God. He loathes it. And we see God's anger viscerally displayed when he, when he does that emotional distancing throughout the entire book of Exodus. You are my people, my people, my people, my people. And what does he say to Moses in verse 7? Your people who you brought out. Totally changing the emotional language. It's what we do when our, when our kids act up. Hey, Kay, your kids did this. Or more often she'll say it. Ben, your kids did this. The emotional distancing language. Go down. For they have quickly gone out of the way. Now, now no, notice the change of perspective. From the people's perspective, Moses has been gone for an interminably long time. Forty days, man, are you kidding me? And God says they have quickly left the way. Quickly. And they have violated his covenant, and he's, and he's almost seething with anger. Because again, like we learned last week, th- this is like committing adultery on your honeymoon. They have just made the covenant. And so God wants to destroy the people. He essentially says, get out of my way. Leave me alone that I might consume them. Moses, you stand over here because I don't want a stray lightning bolt to get you. And he's about to wipe them out. And he offers Moses this. I'm going to start over with you. So you will be the one who will become the fountain, the head of this covenant people. And all these people... They're going to be goners because they are stiff-necked. This is the first time in the Bible that the concept of being stiff-necked is articulated, but it becomes a favorite reference point. Uh, and, and so prophets and kings, and even in the New Testament, Stephen refers to people as being stiff-necked. You know what stiff-necked refers to? It's an agricultural term for an animal that is too stubborn and recalcitrant and difficult to bend its head to accept the yoke. And what do you do with an animal that you need for work that refuses to wear the yoke? Before PETA. Right? It was what's for dinner. But the people of God are repeatedly referred to as being stiff-necked. We're too proud and we're too stubborn to accept God's good and gracious yoke. And Jesus himself speaks of a yoke, does he not? Come to me, all who are, what? Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. But there are people who hear that and they absolutely refuse to bow the neck and receive that. I'm going to do it my way, in the words of Frank Sinatra. My way. And they proudly go their way to their grave. These people are stiff-necked. And I have seen this people. Remember verse 1. What do the people say about Moses? This Moses. That term of contempt. And he applies that to the people. This people. See how angry God is. And Moses intercedes. Moses, as a faithful covenant mediator, intercedes for the people. How many of you, if the living God said to you, step aside, I'm going to kill all these people and start over with you, and you are going to be the head of a new humanity, and, and all the people of God will forever be referred to as Mosesites, or Danielites, or Geraldites, or, or Lauranites, or, 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 or Alanites. Oh, how many of you would say, go get them? <laughs> Not Moses. What does he do? He intercedes. Now it's interesting. Contrast his intercession with that of Abraham back in Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, God is coming and he's come down to see the iniquity of of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's intercession is predicated on the assumption that there are righteous people. Lord, if there's at least 50 righteous people, you you won't destroy the, the righteous and the wicked, will you? He He assumes that there's righteous people. And of course, (laughs) there's not. Moses here, he doesn't start out that way. He doesn't say, Lord, there's there's nearly two million souls down there. Surely a couple of them didn't do this. Don't wash away the, the innocent with the wicked. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to cover the people's guilt. He doesn't try to make excuses or diminish or, or minimize. What does he do? He does what Jesus does for you and to me. He appeals to God's character. Your salvation is not bound up in the goodness of your actions, the, 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 the enthusiasm of your worship songs. It's bound up in the faithfulness God's character as petitioned by his son. And Moses makes four reference points. He appeals to God as father. God has just said, these people whom you brought out. And Moses, no, no, no. They're your people. That's what you've been saying all along. They are your people. Which is what God has been saying all along. And in Exodus chapter 4, he goes so far, if you recall, to refer to Israel as my firstborn son. So so remember, these are your people. You're their father. Do fathers destroy their children? Second, he appeals to God on the basis of his mission and past involvement, whom you brought out with a mighty hand. Remember that God did this stuff specifically and explicitly with a mighty hand, with signs and wonders, all that, so that his name would be famous 
So you have invested your time and your energy and your efforts and your mission to make yourself known with these people. So Lord, don't throw it down the drain. And then he appeals on the basis of God's reputation. Why should the Egyptians say, oh, he, he just took them out there to kill them? In other words, why should your name be profaned amongst the nations, O Lord? You have done all these things that your name could be exalted. Don't do something that would make the nations profane your name. And of course, that's a recurring theme in Scripture. We learn in Isaiah that for his sake he does it. He will not share his glory with another. He gets all the glory. And so your salvation is secure because of that. And then lastly, he reminds God of the covenant promises and his friendship to Abraham. Abraham is called a friend of God. The only one in the Bible who is explicitly called a friend of God. He's a friend of God. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel and your covenant to them. And so God remembers and God relents. Now, we see here how God responds to faithful intercession of a mediator. And, and, and we can ask all sorts of questions. You know, was God really going to destroy them? Did he change his... Well, well, this is certainly a picture of God's wrath towards sin and how a sovereign God responds by use of human means called prayer to bring about His will. But, but we see some clues that He never really intended to kill the people anyway. Where? Well, look. What does He say in verse 7? Go down. Now, as if... Moses, you're in charge here. Go down and deal with them. But why go down at all if God's about to destroy them? And then second, he says something kind of strange to our ears. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And he says this right before Moses prays. What's the implication? That if God is not let alone, he won't destroy them. And so Moses, of course, prays. And prayer is the means by which God's will in this world oftentimes becomes realized. And God responds to the prayer of his mediator. So Moses then goes down to see it for himself. And, and you wouldn't believe the amount of critics who, who just don't get it. They, they think that this is evidence of a, of a redacted scripture, a, regret, a redacted narrative that before God, and up to verse 13, Moses is pleading for the people. Please, God, don't kill them. Please don't kill them. And then he goes down and immediately he's all angry. That's just, that's just crazy. And I'm thinking, are none of you critics parents? I mean, how many parents before, before, will get a call from the school and the, the principal or the teacher's like, they're going to be expelled. Please don't, don't have mercy. And then you turn around and you go home. Get the belt. Right? I mean, every parent understands pleading for mercy before someone who's powerful and then once you get alone with them, now it's time to feel the wrath. Okay? I don't get why they don't get it. 
And so Moses goes down there, and some people think that Moses is having a temper tantrum when he throws the, ten command, or the, the two tablets on the ground and breaks them. Moses is not doing what you do when you get angry. He's a prophet. And throughout Scripture, prophets do symbolic actions regularly. So what is it conveying that here, these are the words of the covenant, and he smashes it to pieces? What is it saying about the covenant? It's been broken. And now we're going to have to proceed with reconciliation and restoration. So you see him as a mediator. Now he's, he's represented the people before God. And as a mediator, now he's representing God before the people. And the people have gone off the rails. Okay, when it says that, that they're sing, when he hears their, when he sees their dancing, the word is plural. They're dancings. It's, it's underscoring that it's just a chaotic free-for-all. So the leaders have failed. The people have gone wild. It is just a madhouse. That's why Joshua thinks there's the sound of war in the camp. It's craziness. And Moses steps in as God's man, and he brings order. The first thing he does is he destroys the artifact itself. He destroys it. And don't, don't miss, he's not pouring molten gold down people's throat. He's ground it up. It's in the water supply. And by drinking it, it's going to pass through their systems, and the gold is completely desecrated for any sort of future use. This thing will never come back. But then the people have gone crazy. And, and some people mistakenly think that, that people are killed in the camp as punishment for worshiping a golden calf, and that's not true. Read what the text says. The text says in verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, think gone crazy, for Aaron had let them break loose, or gone crazy, to the derision of their enemies. In other words, the people of the surrounding nations were, were they were all laughing stock. Here you are, these people, you come out here and, you, and you've had total societal collapse. And all the enemies of the people of God are mocking and it's just shame. Isn't that similar to what happens in a church sometimes when a scandal happens? The enemies of the people of God are always around, ready to laugh, ready to mock, ready to talk about how we can't organize and govern and everything else and how we're just hypocrites and blah, 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 blah. And they've gone wild. So when Moses unleashes the Levites, what you have to understand, what's happening really is the Levites are performing basically a riot police function. They are going to restore order. And do not think that what's happening here is that they've gotten online and they're just charging into the people just swinging their sword. If you think about it, there's like 2 million people down there, 3,000 die. Statistically, it's an almost insignificant number. But in terms of population control and getting a, a people back in order, if they go through the camp and they find the people who are the ringleaders, who are the ones egging it on, who will not repent, and those people get brought under control and get killed, then very rapidly the entire population comes back into order. So he restores societal order. 
That's what happens. And because they were zealous for the name of God amongst His people, they are now going to be the, the priestly class dedicated to God because they love God more than their brothers and their cousins and everything else. And that sort of harkens into the New Testament. What does Jesus say? If anyone loves his father or mother or brother or sister more than me, he's not worthy of me. Dedication and duty to God come first. But even after this, even after Moses has restored order, he can still sense it's not enough. The sin has not been atoned for. Which is why he says, I'm going back up. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. So he goes back up. And he's seen the sin for himself. And in verse 32, uh, in verse 31, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And then in verse 32, he does something that has never been prayed before in the Bible. If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see, Moses reaches back to what he's learned in Exodus chapter 12 about a substitute. And he knows these people are guilty. He knows these people cannot keep God's covenant. They cannot keep the law. They, they cannot walk in the right way. Their hearts are hard, and they have no hope. So God, if you will forgive them, great. But if not, let me take their place. Let me be their substitute. So Moses here offers himself as a sacrifice and as a substitutionary atonement for the people. And God turns him down. Did God turn him down because, Mo because he just has a, 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 he, an aversion to the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice? No. Why is Moses turned down? Because Moses can't be a substitutionary sacrifice for the people. Moses is a sinner. We've already seen that Moses has committed murder back in Exodus chapter 2. He, he, he's, he's, he's got an anger problem. And he's going to get angry with the people later. And it ultimately disqualifies him from entering the promised land. Moses needs a Savior. So he can't himself, a sinner, represent other sinners. But it prepares the way. It points the way to the one who will be able to stand in the gap and receive in himself all of God's just and righteous anger for our sin and be the living way. Jesus. So Moses here foreshadows the mediating relationship that Jesus will have. Where Jesus stands in the gap representing us before the Father and representing the Father before us. Jesus is perfect so He could bear God's wrath and He could make atonement for all of our sins. Without the mediating presence of Christ at the right hand of God now, we would have no hope. But we can have hope. Because so sufficient was Christ's work on this earth that God's ultimate stamp of approval was the resurrection of Jesus. 
Whenever you doubt that Christ is mediating for you or that Christ's suffering was sufficient to cover your sins, just remember that God verified that He accepted it by raising Christ from the dead. It means death no longer has a hold on Him. It means your guilt is no longer there. It means for every sin that you have committed or will commit, Jesus has made full satisfaction. So so I don't want you to think that your sin is not a big deal to God. He hates it. That's why His Son died. Those angry words to your spouse, to your kids, to your parents, to your boss, they cost Jesus His life. But because Jesus gave His life, you have And you have forgiveness. And you have hope. So, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And in Matthew, Jesus tells us that this cup is His blood of the new covenant. There was a covenant made at Sinai, but it was not perfect. A better covenant was needed, so God promised it. And Jesus comes and inaugurates it. So now we live in the light, not of an anticipating of Christ's sacrifice, but we get to live our lives reflecting and enjoying the benefits of Christ's perfect work on our behalf. So as we come to this table, just remember, we don't think our sin is bad. God thinks it's huge. And Jesus gave his life and shed his blood to be our perfect mediator. Let's pray.